Amen. You may be seated. Good to be back here again this Sunday morning in the dark, awaiting the light. My name is Matt McGill, and I'm grateful to be here this morning. Uh, We've been uh, in a study of Mark. Uh, Last week we finished up chapter one, and now we're moving on to chapter two. I want to let you know right away that uh, there is a lot going on. We're going to move through a lot of scripture, but I think you're going to see how how God uh, in his spirit has used uh, these different vignettes, has tied them together to show us a bigger picture of what's actually happening. It's hard to imagine probably uh, Jesus coming to Tyler, Jesus being over on Bodark in some house somewhere where so many people are crowding in, uh, crowding around that you can't get in. And you know your need, and you know that healing is on the inside, but you can't get in. Somehow the crowds, by the way, can I just say, I love people, but I hate crowds. Last time I was at a really crowd, a crowd I was at 300,000 people uh, at, uh, at Lollapalooza in Chicago, the Black Keys were playing. I found myself right in the middle, and I said, Dear God, all of a sudden, what I thought was wonderful turns out to be terrifying. Being squished in in that kind of crowd is not somewhere I want to be. But uh, thank God, you know, I got out. You know. uh, so we're going to be looking at Mark 2 today. Uh, let me pray just for my own uh, peace of mind and heart and be, so that I'd be settled today. Father, thank you this morning that you've given us everything we need in Jesus, everything we need in your word. And we thank you that it can indeed rightly divide, that it can penetrate the heart. Lord, we thank you this morning that you're going to give us just what we need by your spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's start with Mark 2. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days... It was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered there together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Now, we know that if he's preaching the word to them, he is preaching the gospel, the gospel. He is essentially just telling them who he is. Now, the word is out at Capernaum, and apparently that's where Jesus hung out. That was his home, or that's where they knew he was, and the people were now realizing there's something new going on. Healing is available to us. They know that they can be healed. And we talked last week about a micro-healing leading to a macro-healing. Remember when the leper was healed and he went out and told everybody, come and see about Jesus. Jesus is, by the power of his, uh, what's, his power over the physical realm, he is drawing people to himself. Guys, there's just a little bit of a high-end feedback on my vocal. Would you turn down the highs a little bit so that little bit is not so distracting to me and everyone? Uh, sorry about that. So here... Uh, the, the question must be asked is, you know, it's true that crowds can keep people from Jesus. Crowds can keep people from Jesus, especially religious crowds, okay? I know a lot of people who won't get anywhere near a crowd of religious people, and for good reason. Uh, they don't feel welcome. They don't feel that they're up to muster. They don't feel quite as holy somehow. Uh, crowds can keep people from Jesus, or can they? This is the question we ask here. Uh, there, is a, there is a new way, perhaps. It says, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. 
And when they could, gotten, could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof from above him. And when they had made an opening, they let him down. They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And then Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. For one for application point right away is, if people can't get to Jesus, you might need to find another way to bring them to Jesus. He is, after all, within you and creative and bringing you to creative possibilities to bring Jesus to them. They removed the roof and they dropped him down. Another idea might be here that you don't get up to Jesus, but you get lowered down to Jesus. Now I have to say, as by way of testimony, that I am a mixed bag of faith and fear. For many, many years now, it seems, I have led worship here with all sorts of faith, but a lot of fear too. I have not really, and we talked about this, this, this idea of an expansion of our, of our, in our mind's eye of just what is available to us in worship, the plurality of voices available, and uh, we're going to get into that a little bit more as we go through, but let's just suffice to say now that when Christ is within, we have creative opportunities to bring Jesus to people in new ways. So he says to the paralytic, and how powerful it is, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I want to say that when Jesus sees these men bringing down their friend, he sees something of the healing that has gone from micro to macro. This is something like intercessory prayer. Do you pray for people? Do you bring people to Jesus in your heart and mind? These men are above Jesus bringing their friend who is his whole life paralytic, laying on a mat, watching people get kicked by. He can't get to the temple. He's cut off essentially from the life of God. They are bringing him down to Jesus. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. He is proclaiming that the sins are forgiven. But wow, let me say that's quite a proclamation for those who are gathered around saying, wait, this is a paralytic man. He looks like he's been forgotten by God and you're calling him son and you're telling him his sins are forgiven. Now, I want to say to you that Jesus' word, I talked about this last week, Jesus' word is causative. It affects what it says. Jesus' word is happening, so to speak here, right? God's word in Jesus is being unveiled. The truth today is that God's word is his action. Now, what does the word say here, the word being Jesus? The word says, son. He calls him something that he was not and then says, your, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes, back to Mark now. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, do you know, uh, I don't know if you know uh, uh, Vin Van Dyke or Charlie Foreman, but I want to show you a little picture of these fellas here. Now, Charlie Foreman and Vin Van Dyke are friends, but it is very possible that when Charlie walks up to Vin uh, and Vin greets him, it is not with a hello or a hug or a high five. He might just hit him in the face. That's the way these two get along sometimes. They just hit each other in the face. Now, I want you to imagine now if Vin Van Dyke hits Charlie Foreman in the face and I pop onto the scene and say, Vin, 
your sins are forgiven. And Charlie says, he hit me in the face. Aren't I the one that's supposed to be forgiving? No, 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 no. I I, want to say that that's where the analogy breaks down because I am not, in fact, Jesus. But for the scribes, it was, you can take the picture away, it's too cute and distracting. but, But the scribes were saying, how can a third party forgive the sins? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now, you've heard of uh, deer in the headlights. I want to propose to you that these scribes were hearts in the headlights, okay? And I think that it's such a tender way that Jesus speaks to them, right? Because he doesn't say, why are you guys thinking like this? He says, why do you question in your hearts? Because what he is saying is, is I am the Lord over this realm, and I am the Lord over your hearts. I can intuit your inner thoughts and, 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 and your heart's predisposition toward those who are cut off from me. You are questioning in your hearts. So he says, and I have to say also that these hearts of the scribes, they're as paralyzed as this paralytic. So Jesus understands that these these constricted hearts of the scribes need the touch of his presence. Remember, we're talking about a king and a kingdom, a king who is ultimately the suffering servant. This is something that Mark is bringing to us through, through his gospel. Jesus is indeed bringing the body of Christ. He sees the body of Christ lowering down this paralytic. He sees these people working in tandem to bring one another to Jesus. That's who you are. That's what you do. That's what we have. He's saying, Jesus is saying, all sins are against me, and the scribes are falling out. What do you mean? If all sins are against you, then you're the God of the universe. That is blasphemy. We're going to have to kill you. And he says, which is easier? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, this is something that you're going to have to think about for just a second. I've been thinking about this all week. Which is easier? He can can say them both. And remember, he says, which is easier to say or which is easier to say? We're talking about the word made flesh. So when Jesus says something, it comes to pass. He is, after all, the word. God is speaking. He is the full disclosure of the heart of God. And so when he says, it has power. So which is easier? This side of eternity, is it easier for me to heal a man or for me to say your sins are forgiven? And this is where it gets tough. You have to really think about this. There were a lot of faith healers. There were a lot of miracle workers. But for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, what does he have to do? He has to forgive them. But he cannot forgive them unless he goes to the cross and dies. So the the answer is this. It is much harder to say your sins are forgiven because he knows what saying that is going to have to affect in his life. You see, what he's saying is, what is easier, to use your power or to lay it down? Now, this is the question that Jesus brings to all of humanity, that God brings to all of humanity in Jesus. Is it easier to use your power or to lay it down? When my wife brings to me something I don't want to hear, I instantly want to use all the powers of my intellect and mind and heart and strength to defend myself. I want to use my powers. But Jesus is saying, it may be harder to lay down your powers, but ultimately, That is the way, the truth, and the life. 
You see, God didn't come in Christ Jesus to wield his power against man. He came to give up his power that man may live and live eternally. I want to say to you today that sinners can only wield power, but saints can lay power down. Now, now Martin Luther has, has come with the idea that we are simultaneously saint and sinner, and our, the, our theology makes a path for that. So the question is, are we going to be spirit-infused saints who lay down our power? Or are we going to be sinners who wield our power to keep more of it because there's not enough to go around in our hearts and minds? He says, but that you may, back to Mark now, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Now, so he's saying, I want you to understand that I have authority to forgive sins, so I'm going to heal him so that you see I have power over this realm. But ultimately, he knows in his mind's eye, in his heart, that saying your sins are forgiven, it's already been settled. See, it's already been settled in the desert with Satan who said, use your power, wield your power, take it now. Use it. Go up to the top of, of the temple. Create. F- jump off. Let an angel catch you. Use your, use your healing to bring this kingdom to you now. Take it now. Even the demons last week said, you are the son of God. And, he's, and they're essentially encouraging him to say, take your power. Use it now. Gain the kingdom now. Because the demons, Satan, does not want Christ dead on a cross but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, say to you, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The word of God says, rise. So there's a little resurrection foreshadowing here. He's saying, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. Sounds a little bit like if anyone would come after me, he would pick up his, he would pick up his cross, die daily, and follow me. There's this sense of picking it up. Your main problem is not your main problem, okay? You may think you have a main problem. It's the thing that you can't get out of your head. That's not your main problem. Your main problem, as, as one has written, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Can you imagine how much dust get, got kicked in this guy's face do you, do you imagine how, what, a, what a drag of a life this paralytic, maybe he's 40 years old by the time he finally gets healed, who knows? But however, it wouldn't take me 10 minutes to not want to be a paralytic. Do you know what I mean? He's maybe been a paralytic his whole life. The man's main problem is bitterness. The man's main problem is that he's cut off from humanity. Pick up your mat sounds like pick up your cross. Take your hurt. Take your healing. Take them both. Combine them. And walk upright because you are forgiven. So now you can forgive others. Do you see? He says, you are forgiven. It's already happened. He he brings him down and he says, rise, be risen, take your mat, and walk. Jesus then calls Levi. Okay, now we're going to stack all these little vignettes and then we're going to go up and we're going to lasso them around and show you what's actually happening here in Mark's gospel. Jesus calls Levi. Okay, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea. By the way, this is where he, we talked last week, this is where he called Peter and Andrew and James and John beside the Sea of Galilee. And all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them, telling them who he was, right? telling him the gospel and at telling them the gospel and as he passed by he saw Levi the son of Alpha Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth and he said to him follow me and he rose 
Ah, this is two, two in a row now, right? He has rise, pick up your mat and walk. And he tells him who is sitting, he rose up and followed. Again, there's this resurrection, right? This is happening. This is happening. The king is bringing a kingdom. And in a kingdom, we live in resurrected, raptured lives. We are extricated from these lives that seem to pull us down into this not enough hostility that so regularly characterizes our day to day. We are raptured in the spirit of God through Christ's power to live in a resurrection. So I want to ask you, are you sitting? Are you stranded? Are you stagnant? This system is broken, and tax collectors of the day, these are Jewish tax collectors who are working for Rome, lining their own pockets. It's a system, and these people are basically, these young Jewish men are basically saying, if you can't beat them, join them and get paid while you're at it. The Old Testament is replete with stories of Israelites making alliances with foreign pagan enemies of God for their own material prosperity. That's what Matthew is. He is essentially a manifestation of that now in this new imperial Roman, uh, this Roman empire. But grace has arrived. And when the word speaks, Matthew rises. He is lifted out. He rose. Christ must bring you new life before you walk. Now, I'm going to tell you another truth today. It's a bad idea to follow Christ without new life. I spent years trying that. (laughs) In fact, I was raised to follow Christ, but without receiving new life by picking up my cross and dying and consequently living Christ has to rise from within you. You have to recognize there must be, as Watchman Nee says, there must be division. We talk about the word penetrating to soul and spirit, separating. There's you, the sinner. There's you, the saint. Which one do you want to live in? A child of wrath or a child of God? Jesus is making this division clear and offering this invitation to these disciples. Rise. Now, I want to tell you something else that happens. Christ must come into your home. Christ must come into your house. The next picture we get after Levi is risen and walks is that Jesus says, I think you might have some money. You might have some good vittles over at your house. You might have some wine. I've got these disciples. We've been doing God's work, but we do need to chill for a little while and party. So they go to Matthew's house. It says here, as he reclined at table, by the way, this is not a serious business meeting where we've got to figure out how to uh, uh, win everyone to Jesus. Jesus has got this. He's easy. He is reclining at the table of Matthew. In his house, and there's many tax collectors. Ugh, ugh, yuck. Tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. So he's reclining and they're reclining. If your rabbi reclines, you recline because you do what your rabbi does. This is how we're led. He's re- they're reclining with Jesus and there were many there that followed him. So there's several examples of Christ coming into the house of sinners. Zacchaeus, of course, he says, I have to come to your house today. But he's crowded out at home, isn't he? He's crowded out at his house. Now we have Jesus with a, in a den of thieves. But I want to tell you, to give a little hat tip to Led Zeppelin, that Jesus makes house of thieves houses of the holy. Jesus brings people together, you see. The, the scribes and the Pharisees want people separated. The devil divides. 
Christ reconciles. Now, I want to tell you something that may seem a little alarming, but I've had some really good times with gangsters and drug dealers, outlaws and counterculture freaks. Truly. We've talked about Jesus even a lot. And do you understand how much the church needs creative, free spirits who can smell religion and hypocrisy from a mile away? We need them in our our midst. We need to draw them in. We are not here to be separate from sinners. We are sinners collected who live under the word of grace upon us. Jesus is the man for the inside job that sinners have, have need of. Henry Nouwen says, who can save a child from a burning house without taking the risk of being hurt by the flames? Who can listen to a story of loneliness and despair without taking the risk of experiencing similar pains in his own heart and even losing his precious peace of mind? In short, who can take away suffering without entering into it? He has got to get inside you. That is the place where healing occurs. So here's the scribes and the Pharisees, back to verse 16. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This rabbi is so dangerously close to sinners. Now, you need to know something, and we're going to look at this point several times here, but hear me and hear this and read this. Obedience to God is is not the same as obedience to God's law. Obedience to God is not the same as obedience to God's law. Obedience to God's law has to do with what you do on the outside. Obedience to God has to do with what you do on the inside. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus has come to capture our hearts that we we would be responsive to those other souls in our midst. Their need, we feed because we live in Christ, yes? Do you keep Christ outside your proverbial house? Or is he on the inside? Do you think that there's perhaps a sinless vocation that you work? Do you think you can keep Christ outside of your vocation? Do you presume that there are certain pathways that are free from sin? These Pharisees want to keep sinners separated from righteous people as if. I remember one morning Luke Bilberry. Remember Luke Bilberry? If you're watching out there, Luke, we love you out in Michigan now. He says, he, he does a welcome, and he says, Welcome to Bethel Bible, where sinners and saints meet together. And I said, in the same person. Because I think that's something we really need to remember, lest we start to get away from the understanding that sin remains and is crouching at our door, ready to overtake us. Here is 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call, not to call the righteous, but sinners. You can't get in the house. Jesus can't get in your house if it's a house of righteousness. But by getting inside, he makes your house a house of righteousness. Yes? There are no righteous. There are only sinners. So to follow Jesus is to sin boldly. Uh, This is another quote from Martin Luther. To sin boldly doesn't mean I'm so proud of my sin, but to sin boldly means you're so proud of the fact that Jesus has forgiven you that you can talk about your sin. That is to sin boldly. A question about fasting. This is the next piece. Uh, uh, Verse 18. 
Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Talk about a grand point of missing the forest for the trees. John, John's disciples needed to fast. The Pharisees need to fast. Christ's disciples do not need to fast. They need to party because Christ is with them. Do you see? It's like to, to fast is, is, is predicated on the idea that something is hidden from you, that something is unclear, that I need to fast because uh, I want God to bring something to me, some measure of illumination. They are in the presence of God. And somehow, by the power of the Holy Spirit, somehow they are being drawn to understand that. We're going to see more of that. It says, uh, Christ continues to answer, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. In a sense, the new cannot be attached to the old. One of my favorite theologians says that Jesus is not a new Moses. Jesus is not a new Moses. That is to say, in in a sense, Jesus is a deliverer, just like Moses is, but Moses was not a final deliverer. Jesus is a final deliverer, so he has not come to deliver you a new law. His, his deliverance is final. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts his new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. The rabbi's students are emulating him. Fasting is not necessary because Christ is all-sufficient. Adding to the sufficiency of Christ only brings diminishment to your walk. Pray for the strength to be weak. Gerard Forte says, We will not accept an almighty God and so are bound by our own will to construct a theology of freedom. The Holy Spirit must overwhelm us that we would indeed accept an almighty God and his word made flesh to us. That we stop somehow, and we can't, by the way, but we keep getting forgiven. It's just how we grow in grace, right? So I ask you, are you constructing theologies of freedom? Are you constructing pathways to get somewhere futilely? Because you're already there in Christ Jesus. Fasting is sought to bring forth what is not, to make clear what is crooked, to make uh, plain what is hidden. But the king and his kingdom have arrived. Jesus is not a truth this morning. Jesus is not an addition to the old, but a fulfillment of the old and a forever replacement. So we move on. One Sabbath, by the way, this is interesting because remember we have 42 immediately's in Mark. Everything's happening very quickly. But there's a break here and it's like one Sabbath. Somehow maybe there's implicit in this is this sense that maybe there's been a little time pass. And maybe during that time pass it was because Jesus needed to rest for a little while. And he rested with God. Remember last week we talked about him getting away to a solitary place. Jesus knows the source of his life. It's sinners who forget, Right? So one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. 
because they were in, by the way, this is a Sabbath. You don't do work on the Sabbath. You don't do work to feed yourself on the Sabbath. But I love this. I love this because they're caught up in the presence of Jesus, and so they forget rules and regulations. They're hungry. Pick the grain. Eat it. Jesus, we're with Jesus. We're not worried. Should we or shouldn't we? Will God smite us if we, you know, it's like, come on, man. Jesus is right here with us. We get caught up in the love of God being shown to them, they do. And, and those they love, they, they forgot about the strictures, all the do's and the don'ts. To be in the presence of Christ is to be released from the self-absorption that the law creates. The self-absorption that the law creates, it's navel-gazing. And it turns you in on yourself trying to follow laws. Be loved. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, second time he calls himself a Son of Man, it's a whole nother series to talk about the weight of that, but that was to say as loud as he could, I am Messiah, right? That's, you couldn't say it more clearly and articulately louder and heavier for the mind of these Pharisees and scribes than to use the word the Son of Man. This new man, this anointed one, orders his life as a gift from God. Jesus is a gift from God to us, but not a gift like you give gifts, not a gift like I give gifts. There's no strings attached. Jesus is a pure gift of God to us. The truth is, even if the law gives insight in how, into how to please God, this is, here it is again, obedience to God is not the same as obedience to God's law. Jesus is obedient to God. Pick the grain fields, don't pick the grain. I am here for you. Now, 2 Samuel 20 talks about this. David, the Lord's anointed, remember this, was on the run from King Saul, the formerly anointed who had lost his anointing and was insane, right? He's, it's interesting here that perhaps John's disciples were probably keeping the Sabbath and fasting and certainly submitting to a baptism of repentance, but they were also likely to return to the law of God unless Christ set them free. Those under the law of Moses are akin to Saul. The anointing is gone. Jesus has left the building, right? There's a new covenant. The old covenant is no more. Jesus here is the true and better David. However, David was on the run from death, right? Saul was after him. But Jesus is walking right into death that we might have life. A man with a withered hand. We're on to chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So now he's, he's got his disciples eating on the, on the Sabbath, picking grains. By the way, disciples only do, a reminder, disciples do what their rabbis do. So it's very likely that Jesus was also picking grain and eating it as well so that they felt, ah, he's doing it, we can do it. It's all fine because we're with Jesus. He shows us the way we are his disciples. Now they're on another, they're on another Sabbath. He enters the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. They watched him 
They didn't, you see it, it doesn't say, and they hoped he would heal their brother. <laughs> no, no, no. They were not interested in the heart of God. They were interested in the law of God. Remember the distinction. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. I love this. It's like, come here. And he's like looking around, judging, not judging, but intuiting every man's heart in the room. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it, he said to them, right, to everyone else, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. And I want to say that I, I underlined and bolded this, but they were silent. They were silent because they do not have the word. They are quieted by the word here. He is the word. They don't have the word. Can love exist in a realm of ideological captivity? No. Our pastor Eric said a couple of weeks ago, you cannot love what you control. Love exists as an end in and of itself. It is freeing. It is healing. It is unbound by rules and strictures. It is present in Christ Jesus. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardened hearts. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. I love this. You know what I mean? As he stretched in the stretching, his hand is healed. He believes, he obeys, he stretches out, and his hand is healed. Now, this is the second time in Mark that the idea is put forth that Christ might be predisposed to not heal someone because of a law. And it's the antithesis of the Sabbath, which is entering into the rest of God, entering into the healing of God. This angers Jesus. It angers Jesus' heart because it is antichrist, because it is the absolute antithesis of God's heart, because it is the absolute antithesis of God's intention for the Sabbath. But look at how quickly Jesus converts anger to grief. And that, I want to submit to you, is the only chasm that's a, that's a chasm that's only bridged by Christ. Are you angry at people? Do you get angry at people? Why not grieve their heart? Why not consider their heart? Why not consider their hurt? You see, the heart of Jesus can convert our anger to compassion. And what he does to us, he then does through us. Jesus converts anger to grief. I want to say also that, to keep going back to a little bit of this idea that worship downtown might be more than we have enjoyed. This is not a negation on any of the beautiful moments that we've had down here and the worship that we've had, but I want to submit to you that it might, there might be more, that, that worship might be like a withered hand that needs to stretch out so that we begin to understand perhaps more of a plurality women and men, young and old, that we, that we explore and remain attentive to the ways God might be trying to speak to us and through us, even in our worship. That's another pitch for next Sunday. Church is something like stretching out our collective hand to discover that his healing is already among us. You see the man, he doesn't say, you're healed, now stretch out your hand. He says, stretch out your hand, and he finds that it's already restored. The Pharisees, <coughs> the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him and how to destroy him. 
Now, you wouldn't believe this. You, wouldn't, you, you can't imagine how ridiculous this is. That these, that these men uh, caught it on one end and dropped it on the other. That these men, these Pharisees who were so concerned with the law, once they realized they had a problem with this Jesus, they instantly leave all of their morals and go conspire with these Herodians. These are men who were down with <clears throat> King Herod. You might, you might think of the Pharisees as something like moralists. And you might think of the Herodians like sensualists, those who loved material goods and ease and rich meat and uh, wine. And, you know, I mean, just think of Herod and then think of the people that would follow Herod. And then the Pharisees who are, who are following the law of Moses. You have these moralists and you have these sensualists. Well, as soon as these moralists' tables are sort of overturned by Jesus, they run quickly to the sensualists because really they were just self-absorbed sinners absent the peace of God who are just looking to control their life, see? I want to say that the enemy of your status quo is always Christ. It's strange to call Christ an enemy, except to say that the word of Christ upends your status quo, just like it does the Pharisees and just like it will the Herodians. The Pharisees and moralists, the Herodians, the sensualists, they're on the same page, but for different reasons. Nothing binds like a common enemy. So we move on. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a great boat ready, excuse me, a boat ready for him because of the crowd. Again, got to think about these crowds, right? People need Jesus. Crowds, there's a madness there. They don't know what they want, Okay. So I just want to just remind you that don't follow crowds. Follow Jesus. Uh, man, uh, here goes the crowd again. Right? He's, he, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready because of the great crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed so many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Now here goes the crowd again. I love people, but I do not love crowds. The crowds want the healing, or maybe they want victory over Rome. But they do not want the Messiah as he actually is. So we move on in verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus rejects the kingdom of old because he is no vending machine. He is not a golden goose. He is not a genie. He's not here to give us what we want. He's here to give us what we need, which is new life. Jesus manifests the kingdom to come because he is a suffering servant. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. I keep thinking here when he talks about strictly ordering them not to make him known. Of One of my favorite scenes in Tombstone is when uh, Kurt Russell, Wyatt Earp, has his brother. He's trying to pull a bullet out of his brother who's just been shot, and he's on a big pool table. And the dog keeps barking. And he's like, can somebody shut that dog up? Can somebody shut? I mean, it's like, if you ever want to, if you're a filmmaker, which you might not be, but if you're ever a filmmaker and you want to add tension, just have a dog start barking, right? And the sense is, is that, you know, Jesus is saying, shut up, demons. Keep your mouth shut. I'm not going to do what you want. I will not take the kingdom here and now. I will die on a cross to bring the kingdom there and then here and now. Does that make sense? Come on. 
He could only come out of nowhere. This Christ would not be, could not come in the way the Jews expected. This Christ could not come in the way that the Jews looked for God. Or, wither, or rather, withheld God from one another. He could only come out of nowhere. What good comes out of Nazareth? And right on time. You see, Jesus is not the strong hand. He made, we made that clear in the desert with Satan. He will not be the strong hand. He will become the withered hand on a cross. Withered that we might stretch out our hand and be made whole. He will not ascend the heights to rule an old, dead kingdom. He will resist every demonic encouragement, even when it comes from Peter, to sidestep the cross. Christ is the gift of our healing lowered down to us from on high. Jesus will enter into the depths like the paralytic, becoming literally lifeless, on a cross. To give us rest, he will endure unrest that a combined in all the unrest that a combined enemy will bring his way to become the high priest who says, They shall enter my rest. Right? Jesus is made away. This is a this is a reenunciation of what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath was not made. What is what is it? The Sabbath is not made. It's kind of a tongue twister. The Sabbath, help me out. The Sabbath was not made for man. No, no. The, the man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. That Jesus would become that which was given to man. Rest. And rest not like a gift with strings attached. Not rest like, oh, can I rest today, God? Yes. Rest has come. The gift is yours. We live and move and have our being in Christ who reconciles all things. We live in rest because we live in the rest of God. It is finished. He is the Sabbath, Shabbat, as a gift to us, not another regulation. He took on death of the old covenant, becoming sin that we might receive the life of the new covenant, upending tradition and forgetting about rules and regulations. Christ doesn't, this is the truth this morning, Christ, listen, Christ doesn't point the way. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Because it is impossible for bulls and goats to take away the sin of man, Hebrews 10 says. And that the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. The title of the sermon this morning was, Are You Picking Up? what Christ is laying down. Which is another way to say, you hear me knocking? Yes. Say yes. yes. Well, let me come on in. Uh, or, you know, are you picking up what I'm laying down? Like Christ is laying down his life. Pick up your mat and walk in the spirit, you know. Now I want to say to you, I was, this is a last second uh, insertion of uh, material, uh, but as, as I come to a close, uh, I was riding up the elevator with Matthew Jewell who was recently married to Peyton Truesdale. And he said, man, marriage is something. I was like, yeah, believe me. 20 years, it's awesome. And he's been married about uh, a month. And he says, he said, I'm sleeping better than I ever had. He said, I've always had trouble sleeping. But now we, we rest together. And I said, man, that is a picture 
of the intimacy that Jesus Christ died to give us, coming into our house and helping us enter into his rest. What a picture. Final quote from Gerard Forde. The radical nature of the divine imputation brings a death and resurrection and begins to kindle the first beginnings of actual hope and love where before there had only been hypocrisy and despair. For then the great commandment, thou shalt love, begins to become a reality. It begins to sound not just as a demand, a law, but as a promise. You shall love. You will love one day, for I love you unconditionally. One day, the last barrier will fall, and you will be mine completely. You can bet your life on it. I don't have a final point. This has been one long points, one after another in Mark. What a bunch of scripture. And yet what we see is that the king has come, that the kingdom has come, because when the king comes, the kingdom comes. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We live and move and have our being in the finished work of Christ. Let him in your house and find rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning. Thank you that rest exists. And thank you for, giving, for forgiving us for all the places we've sought rest but found only unrest. Thank you for being so much quicker to forgive than we are to seek your forgiveness. And thank you for continuing by the power of your spirit to return us to the truth of your everlasting love and acceptance of us. We thank you for this body. We thank you for this place and space and time where we can acknowledge you today. Today, if you hear the word of God, do not harden your hearts. Lord, we will not harden our hearts this day because your spirit has given us a heart of flesh and removed our heart of stone. Would you continue to make us responsive one day to the next until you take us home or come to get us, Lord? We thank you for the love that binds. We thank you for the rest, and we thank you for coming into the interior spaces where we would resist you but need to accept you. Would you continue to cause us to accept you this day? We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.